mid July 2002, Belmont County, Ohio. At around 6.40 in the morning, while most of us are starting the day brushing our teeth and getting ready for work or school, a young girl called Alyssa is woken by the sound of a gunshot and a loud thud hitting the floor. Paralyzed by fear and worry, Alyssa moves through the house inconspicuously and calls out for her family. But when she reached the living room, her worst fears were realized. Underneath a blood-stained wall, she was shocked to find her father lifeless at the door's entry. This is the story of the murder of a man by the name of John Cornelius McGee, also known as JC. But who was John? And why was John shot in his home over 21 years ago? And why has the case remained unsolved? That's the question Madison McGee, John's other daughter, has been spending the better part of the last five years trying to figure out. The investigation has taken on an ongoing quest for new evidence to unravel the truth around the mystery of her father's death. But what are the lasting impacts on the family members of unsolved murder cases? Who can you turn to when the justice system fails to investigate a cold case? And what does it mean to take an investigation into your own hands when it comes to seeking answers and understanding about cases that get conveniently swept under the rug or disregarded altogether for seeking resolution? That's on today's episode of Motive and Method. Welcome to Motive and Method. I'm Tim Watson Munro. And I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallet. And today we're having a very interesting discussion with Madison McGee. Madison's father was murdered when she was a child, although she only learnt that he was murdered when she was an adolescent at about the age of 16 years. This has prompted her to explore the dynamics surrounding her father's murder, asking questions, nudging the local police and so on to little avail. And as a consequence, she's now produced her own podcast, which explores the dynamics and circumstances surrounding the murder of her father. So, Madison, do you want to just give us a a brief introduction to what happened and why? Because I've listened and Tim and I both listened to the first episode, which has just Mm. dropped, and it is intriguing and there's lots of questions that I have. extraordinary story. So do you want to just kind of give us the basics and then we will move forward with certainly some of the questions that we have and, and some of the questions you obviously had? Yeah, of course. The long short of it is... On July 11th, 2002, my dad was asleep in his bed and heard kind of a a loud noise happening outside. He got up, walked to the front door, and before he got there, the door was kicked in and he was shot at point blank range and died. They, whoever it was, never entered the house. They ran away. And since then, it's been a cold case and the police cannot figure out who did this, why they did this, how they did this. My sister, who is 10 years older than me, was in the house at the time and she made the 911 call from the house. And she says she didn't see anyone. She looked. There's kind of big windows. She did take a look. My dad lived on like a dead end. So there would have she would have seen someone running or driving away. She didn't see anyone. So we really had no leads. And when I started diving into this, there was a very small police file, not a lot of leads, not a lot of potential suspects. And a lot of people who could have been involved are have passed away or don't want to talk. So it it made for a really interesting and challenging investigation that I've kind of been on for the last like five years. Well, I guess you're motivated by the fact it was your father. You'd like some solution and uh, resolution to this. Uh, But also it's a very good podcast. It's um, the episode I've listened to. It's fabulous. Congratulations. It creates the scene remarkably well. You feel like you're in the room. Yeah, and I was particularly interested in the police investigation. You mentioned it's a cold case. We're talking 20 years ago. So for the listeners, definition of a cold case being a case where there's no investigative leads that are currently outstanding, waiting to be followed, etc. So I guess that's my first question. You're investigating this. You've been doing it for five years now. 
where is the police investigation at? Because obviously this is still an open murder case. Yeah. And that's proven some interesting challenges in itself. They spoke with me in the beginning. It actually, we'll, we'll get into it in the podcast, but it was such an interesting sort of series of events. I called just knowing the landscape of true crime podcasts. I thought you could just call police departments and get access to police files. I've heard <laughs> a bunch of podcasts doing that. So I thought I'll just give them a call. In the beginning, I actually wasn't sure if I should say that I was the daughter or if I would get more information if I said I was a journalist. So I tried to kind of play both hands and see which rendered more information. And eventually after nine months, was sent the police files. and On the basis of you being the daughter or a journalist? On the basis of being the daughter. So initially I called and they said, yep, we do like a public records request and it goes to the county prosecutor and then they send you everything that you're asking for. So I said, okay. They said it takes about two weeks. I was like, I'll follow up in a month if I don't hear from you. I didn't hear from them for nine months and I kept calling and then finally I got a hold of someone and then kind of explained, you know, I was six. I'm trying to figure out what happened to my dad. They sent over a very, very small file. And from there, yeah, I mean, even then I chatted with some of the detectives a few times for like an hour or two, but recently haven't gotten a lot from them. I've called with, hey, you know, I talked to this person that you said was a key witness that you couldn't get a hold of. I got a hold of them. Do you want to talk to them? They're in the town that you're in. You know, should I help facilitate? Don't hear back. It's it's very weird. So do you think that's sort of willful obfuscation or is it just the fact that it was a very skinny file to start with because there were so few leads? I think maybe a little bit of neglect. And that's something that we dive into in the podcast. There's a whole episode about, you know, what's protocol, what's normal, and what was actually done in this case. And I do think that there's a lot of things that maybe were overlooked, whether that was on purpose or accidental or because of the circumstance, I don't know. But it does seem like there was a lot that wasn't done that would normally be done. And 21 years ago, that wasn't that long. Like you could test for DNA. There were things that you could do. Um, this wasn't like in the 80s. So it's very interesting. So do you think some of this reluctance maybe to engage with you now, I guess they know you're doing the podcast. Do you think that's because maybe they're kind of going, well, we don't really want it to all be very much out there that we didn't do all this stuff. So if we just don't engage, maybe we can just keep that on the low a little bit. 100%. Yeah, I think they don't want to accept responsibility for maybe, and, and this is what I unfortunately think, it's going to be very difficult in court to prove that who I think did this. Oh, so you've reached um, a conclusion who you think is responsible. Because we've only heard episode one, yeah. and so there were lots of things going on in that episode, but which I, we I will get into. I think I know off the back of episode <laughs> one, but I'm, I'm not going to spoil it for people. Oh, no, don't spoil it, because no. I don't know off the epi well, back of episode no, I'm just, one. Yeah, I, I'm a criminal psychologist. I delve into these things, and Xanth is an eminent criminologist. But that phenomenon you're describing, I think, is a global phenomenon, you know, where they just uh, want to cover their tracks uh, we've been looking at a few cases over the years in documentaries where when you try and speak to the investigating department, you find there's a paucity of evidence. There's undertakings to look into it and get back to, which never occurs. So I don't think it's confined to LA by any means. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. But this is a very small town this happened in too. So, you know, there would have been a finite number of people to look to, to interview witnesses, it's different than if something happened in middle of Sydney, you know, where, where we're recording from today. So you might think that would facilitate an investigation because I think in the podcast it says there were like just over 2,000 people living there at the time. Yes, they did question people. So I have witness testimonies, transcripts of them, and I have written statements. And it's interesting if you have listened to episode one, there's a character 
in the episode through normal protocol, you would assume would be considered a suspect. Yeah. Whether or not he yeah. did it yeah. is we will we'll go into that and, and try to figure that out. But at the very least, let's look into this person. Yeah. Never considered a suspect at all during this investigation. Well, I know, I know who you're talking about. So do you want to talk us through that that first episode? And then if if it's okay, I may jump in with some questions because sure. things were like yeah. popping into my mind as we went through. And it got more and more intriguing as the episode went on. Cause like you it's it's well, you start and it seems pretty simple and pretty straightforward in the beginning. And then by the time you get to the end, you go, It's oh, complex. This is not what I thought this was. Yeah. And it gets I incredibly more complex. Um that, that actually was the biggest struggle was figuring out the episode structure and how to tell this story and not make each episode where you're like, wait, what was going on? So, you know, straightforward kind of from like my initial, my dad was shot in his doorway. Seems, you know, like maybe someone was just, I don't know what they were doing, trying to rob my dad's house. Something weird is going on. And then there's this home invasion story. And that's where things get incredibly strange and every detail of the home invasion is weird and does not make sense. Could you just explain the home invasion story? Because it's a separate kind of chapter to this. Well, it's kind of separate, but obviously there's something interlinked It's intertwined, but I I think it'd be good for people to know what Yeah, absolutely. My dad, and and this is kind of common in this area, my dad lived next door to his sister. Um, So my dad is JC and his sister is Pearl. And Pearl's son, Omar, lived with her. And he was probably like in his early 20s at the time. And he was a local drug dealer. And I think my dad had some thoughts about that living out of her house, doing what he was doing. I think he was very concerned for her safety in general. And there was sort of this weird landscape of the town where drug dealers were robbing other drug dealers. Because if you go and rob, you know, 10 grand from a drug dealer, they're not going to call the police and say, oh, my money is missing. Because it's like, well, where did you get your money? So they kind of had an out. (laughs) Yeah, they had an out there. So this theory is that there was a safe being held at Pearl's house with some money that either Omar or his brother or someone had been holding and they got the money through doing some drug deals and that three or four. And at some point, Omar says six men broke into this house where Omar and his girlfriend, Kim were sleeping in the living room and were looking for money and they were looking for this safe and they were trying to rob them and they tied them up. Uh, poured rubbing alcohol on them, said they were going to light them on fire if they didn't get the money. And according to everyone's reports, they were there for like 30 to 45 minutes, which seems incredibly long if you're trying to run in, take some money and get out of there. And somehow after 45 minutes of that, they go outside with Omar. And I do not know if Omar went willingly or they took him outside or what was happening there because the only person that would know is Omar. And they take him outside and somehow end up next door at my dad's house, shoot my dad, steal nothing, and leave. Because they didn't even go in the house, did they? They literally shot him from the doorway. He opened the door, point blank range, they were on the doorstep, and they shoot him. Yeah. Yeah, in the head. So this is not um, this is not accidental. Well, it's a kill shot. It's an ex- no. yeah. This yeah. is an execution. Is what happens. Yes. And then the police kind of, when I was speaking with them, chalked it up as like, oh my gosh, just a home invasion gone wrong. How crazy! And I'm like, again, I've seen all the shows, I've heard all the podcasts. Like, this is not a home invasion gone wrong. This seems very strategic, and it seems intentional. Well, a home invasion going wrong, you would expect somebody in the house being invaded to be shot. That does not explain why they go next door and shoot somebody on the doorstep. Unless, as you've explored a bit, the primary target was, in fact, your father. And um, the home invasion's a kind of smokescreen for that. that. That's a possibility. Yeah. But, I mean, it's a serious smokescreen. They're in there 45 minutes. They tied up the two women. They put towels or something over their heads, didn't they, so they couldn't see what was happening. They were obviously thinking these guys are still there. They don't know what's going on. So it's all a very confusing yes. scene. 
And they obviously went in there for a reason. They stayed there for a significant period of time under that circumstance. Go next door, shoot your father, and then run without taking anything. What does your cousin say about all that? We've hardly spoken. Yes. I've heard from him since the release of the podcast, and I don't think we will speak without an attorney present um, moving forward. But he sticks to the story that men and his number has shifted as well, but he's now saying three men broke into his mom's house, tied them up, were looking for money, and that you know, something weird happened that he can't explain and won't explain and that he also wants to find out what happened, which is just, you're the only person on planet Earth besides the people who were did it that know what happened. So to say that you want to find out feels very weird to me, but... Especially given the context of the emergency calls. So do you want to tell us a little bit about those emergency calls? Because that kind of signifies that Omar knew something about what was going on from what he said and also, perhaps more importantly, what he did not say. And could I just add before you describe it, the, what struck me was the, the lack of affect in the phone call. Ah, well, exactly. Yeah, There's it's... no affect at all. It's very clinical. Yeah, and certain really important pieces of information not mentioned. Completely left out. At this point also, it's been, for what we're talking about, a long time before he makes the call. So it's about, Alyssa made her call at 6.41, and she waited about 45 seconds because she didn't know if they were still in the house. So Alyssa is your sister. She's in the house. She's the one who found your dad's body. She comes out of her room and sees him on the floor, right? Yeah, so she hears the gunshot and she hears him fall to the ground. Yeah. She waits what she thinks is about 45 seconds to a minute. And then she goes out and makes her 911 call. So we can assume it's been about 60 seconds. Okay. Omar makes his call three and a half minutes after Alyssa. So how does he make his call if he has been taken or goes with these guys from the house he then manages to leave them at some point and go and make this call. Yes. So he runs. So my dad's house is here and the next door is Pearl's. And then next to that is this break shop. And that break shop marks the end of a dead end street. So you can't go past the break shop. Omar, instead of running home, instead of running into my dad's house, knowing that these men have left, he runs to the break shop and is standing outside looking disheveled and the owner of the break shop comes outside and is like are you okay and he's like can I use your phone and he calls 911 from this break shop telling them that his mom and his girlfriend have been tied up they were hostages they he they these guys were going to kill them and off the record Omar tells my sister and the police that they were shooting at him as he was running to the break shop. But there were no other gunshots heard and no other bullet casings in the woods. So that's a, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, that's a made-up story, probably. That's been actually the biggest uphill battle. What is that, you know, I asked the prosecutors, since Omar is the only person presumably that knows what happened besides the people who did it, if he comes forward with a story, what do we do? Do we prosecute the people he says? Do we go to court? What happens? And they're like, we can't trust him. We already know that he's made up several stories. So any story he says has to be corroborated by someone else, which now I have the burden of finding another person who will say this is what happened because he just is an unreliable witness. And in that unreliability was played out in that phone call, wasn't it, that he made? So he's saying, okay, my my mum and my girlfriend are tied up. He's like, they've got them. He mentions that. He mentions the gunshot. But he doesn't mention anything about his uncle, does he? And he says something about a burglary or something, which is Mm. totally misleading and confusing. And and, vague. um, And vague, yeah. Yeah, it, it, to me, it sounds like Maybe in the beginning, because he starts it with, my neighbor says he's being robbed right now. I don't know if he was initially thinking, oh, I'm going to say that my mom's house is being broken into and robbed to try to 
remove my identity from the scenario. And then they ask, what's your name? And he says, Omar. So it's like, well, now you've kind of outed yourself, but he never mentions the gunshot. He never mentions my dad. He never, and and, and yeah, that's the weirdest thing. If he is talking about my dad, because he does say he, my dad, you know, no one's getting robbed yelling at their neighbor saying, oh, I'm being robbed right now. No one has ever said that. That's the weirdest thing. And unless they're like, go get help. And by that point, my dad was dead. So it it, it just doesn't make any sense. But yeah, it's it's very suspicious. And it's unfortunate that if for whatever reason he didn't have anything to do with this, he looks incredibly guilty from all of these scenarios. And arising from that, that comment, why the lack of follow-through, do you think? You mean from the police? Yes. Because the police did show up, didn't they? But they didn't necessarily respond as you mm. might expect them to in those immediate kind of first responder emergency scenarios because you've got multiple calls coming in, one from your sister, one from Omar. I'm assuming other people who heard the gunshot are calling that in because it's early in the morning. So what do the police do? They've got two scenes that are being reported, one a death scene, one a break and like a home invasion. What do they do? When they show up, they go to the home invasion first, which is incredibly odd and still something that I can't get an explanation on. So you've asked them, you've literally talked to the investigators and said, you know, you've, you've got a report of a guy being shot in his doorway. Or shot dead. Yeah, shot dead at this point, and you're going next door. And, and they didn't have an explanation for you? No. And they went straight to Pearl and Omar's house, and then they went over to get Alyssa, and when they got Alyssa, they took her over to Pearl and Omar's house. But they went there first. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. It, it, there's a lot happening, I'm sure, behind the scenes that we will begin to kind of dive into that even I still don't have full explanations for. But it, yeah, it's the, it's very suspicious. Was Omar, as we say in Australia, known to the police? Did he have form? Were they aware of his activities? Yes. Um, they were aware of his activities. He was part of a group of people that were definitely on the radar of the police and still are. Um, but there is a group of them that for the last 25 years have been on their radar and sort of go in and out of jail a couple of years at a time for little things. And then they get out and then they just go right back to doing what they were doing. Yeah. Yeah. Normal pattern. Because drugs is a big problem in that area, isn't it? Yes. Massive. And it's a, a very interesting situation of like location. So. In America, it's very interesting. We have federal and we have local state charges, and they're very different. So in LA, for example, you could travel from LA to Burbank, which is about 20 minutes. And if you carry a certain amount of drugs, it's a state charge. You might get a couple of years. You'll go to a state prison. The end. If you travel the same distance in this area, you cross a state border. Yep. That now becomes a federal charge. You'll go to federal prison and the charge levels are completely different. So you could go to jail for life with no possibility of parole for the same amount of drugs that you could carry from one town to the other in California and go to state prison. So this area is very interesting because you have access to three states within 45 minutes of each other. Right. And so you're funneling drugs to major cities out of this small town. With major consequences. Major consequences. And if you take the risk, potentially major reward, because you're one of five drug dealers dealing to some of the biggest cities in the Midwest. And I'm sure with that comes competition, people vying for money. If someone's, you know taking over the town. I think it can get really complicated. And with my dad being an informant for the police, he was definitely messing with a lot of these people's in source of income. And in episode one, it seems very obvious. Oh, 
Omar was involved in some way. Yeah, and that actually caught me off guard. So we've got the Omar, we've got the the home invasion, we've got the odd phone calls. And you know, we have think, your father as a police informant, which adds a whole new layer yeah, and, to this and potentially. That, that caught me off guard. That mm. the police informant, because you know, at the at the beginning of this, I saw your dad as kind of just a victim. Maybe I don't know how he became involved as a neighbor, like just next door. And you know, obviously, he's your dad. He's home with his other daughter, and he. And it all seems quite straightforward. But actually, your dad is quite an interesting character, too. So, could you tell us a little more? about him to help us unpack this because what seems straightforward is actually a lot more complex even in that first episode. Yeah, so my dad was at one point also a drug dealer, was doing drugs, selling drugs, participating in this sort of drug activity, crime activity in in this area. And again, I think not to justify any of it, but when you're living in a really low poverty area, you really have no other option than to get involved in some of these things, especially when your whole family is involved in this. So this is survivalist really, isn't it? You know, people getting involved in in illegal activities just to survive, you know, just to 100%. feed their families, etc. Your dad wasn't driving a Rolls Royce or a Cadillac, right? He did no. have a nice car though, didn't he? He drove a Cadillac. Oh, he did um, have a yeah. Sorry, yeah, and it had gold rims. I remember the gold rims. Yes. I'm very, yeah, very yes. sure. yeah. But no Rolls Royce. But there is one scenario where essentially my dad's back is up against a wall, and he will go to jail if he doesn't turn and become a police informant. And that sort of starts this journey for him in the early '90s, where there's one specific case where he turns on his own becomes an informant and continues to do so to get himself out of trouble. And throughout the 12 years of him doing that before his death, created a lot of enemies, put a lot of people in jail, people that he knew, people that he worked with. And I think that that created a lot of enemies, but it's hard to know who would be mad enough to do this, which one was worse. Like what was happening there that was this planned by multiple people that he got locked up? It's it's really layered. Strong chance. I mean, I don't know how it works in the US, but I can tell you based on decades of experience, people who become registered informants in Australia, depending on who they're informing on, they are marked. Mm. You know, they are generally singled out for some sort of execution and uh, there's been a, a number of big cases in Australia in recent years, one involving a lawyer who became an informant. Nobody can find her now. She's in hidden protection and so on. So without defaming your father at all, but it's a very interesting dynamic which you describe, and it's obviously a very significant one. And I would think even more dangerous in a small town because... Everyone knows everyone's People business. would have known, surely, that he was informing. Now, if you're a marked person in this town of 2,000 people, that makes it very difficult to go about your daily life safely. And he's got a number of children too, and I know your sister was living with him and there were, I think, six children in total. And I don't know if, obviously, you all lived in that town, but obviously he would have been conscious of his family's, the danger that they were also in. Yes. And he was very paranoid. And my mom has this chilling interview bite where she talks about how he thought someone was going to kill him and would talk about it quite often. And it's just absolutely gut-wrenching to hear her kind of describe even the fear. I live with my mom about two and a half hours away. And knowing that even my mom was quite worried about something happening and always checking in because she could feel his paranoia through conversations and just through him discussing it, that it's it's almost like, I mean, it's chilling to think like he knew that this was going to happen to him, but he didn't know when and how. I mean, you in the podcast, you described that as paranoid and you used the word then, but actually... It's realistic. Yeah, I don't know. It is paranoid when you're living in this situation, which is clearly dangerous. And he would have obviously recognized the danger that Omar was in as well, also mixed up in this world, and Omar's mum, his sister, and everyone is kind of highly connected to you, intimately connected with you, is ultimately involved vicariously, aren't they, through those primary points that are actually committing the 
the crime. So he would have been very, very aware. And yeah, I think it's, yeah, maybe more realistic ultimately, given what happened. You know, it may have seemed paranoid at the time, but, you know, at the end of the day, he was shot on his doorstep. Which gets back to my smokescreen argument that maybe he was the target after all. I mean, who knows? It's a fascinating tale. Your dad was clearly stuck between a rock and a hard place, wasn't he? If he didn't work for the police, he'd go to the federal penitentiary or the state one, do jail time, very hard. And by choosing the alternative, uh, his life was on the line, potentially, and it was. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's part of kind of going back to the police not speaking up. If they admit that my dad was killed because he was an informant, that jeopardizes anyone being willing to be an informant down the line. So that's something that they've never actually outright said because any admission of that is very detrimental to any program that they're running now, anyone that they're dealing with now, especially back at the time when this was like the fresh new thing happening. And I think that there's a very big chance that the Belmont County Sheriff's Department is listening to my podcast, is watching me do this, and they're sitting there going, well, we know exactly what happened, but we will never say. Yeah. And that's kind of, I, I can see why you might think that because, you know, if somebody's shot, obviously, somebody's murdered on their doorstep, you've got, you've got a forensic crime scene, right? So I was particularly interested when you said that police attended, no evidence is collected. Now, uh, that's unheard of. Like, and, and the house, your dad's house, was a second port of call. They, they went to Omar's place, Pearl's place first. Yeah, and the, the house was never taped off. My sister talks about later in the show about how she went to the, she was taken obviously to the police station for questioning and gave her statement and they, she was there for quite a while. Obviously, she was like the main witness. She gets home and she said family members were running in and out of the house, looking for insurance papers, asking my sister if they knew if my dad had life insurance and we're looking for this. And she was like, it was crazy. There was blood and guts on the floor still. And they're stepping over it, looking for insurance papers. And my sister was like, I, she couldn't really comprehend. She was 16. Suggesting it's a family hit, perhaps. That the, the motive was to get your dad's life insurance money. Was that what they were intimating? I, I don't know if that, I mean, it's very possible, but it's just weird to me that the police wouldn't say, hey, you can't go in here for a while until we, you know, swab some stuff here, wipe some stuff down, collect, like, take a look at least, like, no taping off anything and just letting people go in and out because now, if I do think it was a family member, well, every family member was going in and out of the yeah, house. Yeah. So there, it's not like, oh, well, mm. there was one footprint from this one person or, or this DNA. one fingerprint yeah, DNA. from this one yeah, person. Yeah. And it's, well, a cousins, aunts, uncles, they were all going in. So it, that wouldn't be weird now, uh, which is very interesting. And I'm assuming they're not rank amateurs, these police. There'd be a lot of homicides in the town. They would have investigated many crime scenes over the years. This doesn't sound like standard protocol to me. Yeah, I, it's the weirdest scenario. I'm told, and I can't find anything, of course, on it. This town, the record keeping is <laughs> lackluster. But I'm told that either that day or that week, there was another homicide in the town. And that that, that house was actually taped off. No one could go in or out for over a year. Whoa, a year. That's my point. Did they tape off um, your aunt's house, Pearl's house? Because obviously, scenario is there was they were in there for forty five minutes rummaging through. They turned the whole house over, didn't they? So if there was going to be any trace evidence, forensic, you know, like the DNA, the fingerprints, whatever, it would be in that house because they only went to the doorstep of your father's house. So there may have actually been less evidence tracking to the offenders there. But next door, it, there could have been a whole heap of things that they could have done. Yes. So they didn't. And it. this is what's so fascinating to me is that everything the police did was sort of because of what they were told. So they're told by Pearl, Kim and Omar that, oh, these guys were wearing gloves. They weren't they weren't touching anything. So the police go, OK, well, then 
what's the point of taping it off and trying to collect fingerprints if they were wearing gloves? But my thing is like, but you weren't there. So how would you know? And wouldn't it be worth just taping it off just in case? Well, you'd do it anyway. A lot of it was like, oh, well, they said this, so we're just going to listen to them or whatever. Did they wear masks or balaclavas or anything like that? That's what they're they're saying. Um, and Kim, who I've spoken to, says that she could not see their faces. She does say that she saw hair and she's able to identify... Kim is the girlfriend. Yeah, Kim is the girl, Omar's girlfriend. Right. At the time. So she uh, says she can identify one of them from their hair? She said that she saw long hair, but they were wearing like a mask of some sort, but she could see hair and that she could, she said still to this day, if she heard his voice, she would know. But because that was the only thing she was able to identify these people from because they were fully covered and then they laid them down and covered them. So she was like, the only thing I have to go off of is voice, but I did see a little bit of like longer dreaded hair. So she was able to like do that, but... Because I mean, it may be that they left hair at the scene. Even though they've got gloves on, I can't imagine a forensic scenario here or in the UK where I did my forensic training where you'd go, okay, well, they had gloves on apparently, so let's not bother given we've got these guys, obviously the prime suspects in a murder next door. That kind of blows my mind that they just went, yeah, let's not worry about that. Just, you know, don't even don't even try. Well, to me, you know, the hardened cynic of decades, it <laughs> speaks to ulterior motives. Doesn't it of just? Course. Yeah, that they didn't want that evidence mm. collected. That's kind of what it said to me. It was like, that's the only reason you're not going to do it because then there is no possibility of that ever being linked to those people if it doesn't exist. That's what I believe. And it's actually funny. I, I feel weird saying that no evidence was collected because... Truthfully, I don't know. I've asked for a list of what they have. They haven't provided anything. So there very well could be like a t-shirt somewhere, but they haven't told me that. So I'm going off of like the information I have, which I'm, I mean, I, I'm pretty confident in my assumption that they didn't get anything, but I've asked multiple times and I've never been given a, no, we don't have anything, but I've also not been given a, oh, well, we have this, 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 and this. Well, you know that they didn't tape off the house where the murder happened. That's for sure. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that's a pretty, that that's a primary scene that they didn't investigate. Yeah. Have you felt, sorry, have you been or felt threatened by this investigation that you're doing? Because it sounds as though you're sort of turning over some uh, material that they'd rather not be out there, whoever they may be. You had any threats or anything like that? Yes. In not so many words, I've been threatened, um, not my life or anything. I've been threatened with lawsuits and other things like that. And I am currently living with this constant sort of uneasy feeling yeah. that I've I've definitely made some people angry who are capable of murder. And you're you're treading a very delicate line here between because you've got obviously the drugs on one side and the people involved in that criminal element, but you've also got the police on the other side who, for their own reasons, may not want you to get to the bottom of this. A, they may just not have investigated it properly. It may just be, as you say, neglect. A little bit of incompetence, you know, is, is potentially in there as well. But also they may have their own agenda for not wanting it because of the informant side. So this is a very delicate balance and or, fine line you you're know, trying to tread. Contamination. I mean, uh, with great respect to the constabulary around the world, there are corrupt coppers. And, you know, there could be corruption involved in this as well. I mean, you know, we're crystal ball gazing, but I was just wondering if you'd been directly threatened because it's a very thorough investigation that you're doing. And the fact that you're getting some pushback on that tells you, tells me there's something there to be found. Yes, I have been, yeah. My, I immediately, a couple of days after the first episode dropped, I got a very, very long message from a cousin of mine threatening to sue me for defamation. I was called by another aunt that another family member is in, currently in the hospital and she is citing stress over my podcast for being in the hospital. It sounds like the family are kind of trying to shut you down, which is confusing to me because you think they would want answers. There you go. Hive mind at work. Mm. Start the sentence, finish the sentence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you would think, but then 
like, let's really think about this. I was six years old when this happened and I'll be 28 in two months and they have not solved it yet. So how badly they want to solve it. Sorry, is that because they don't know how? Is it lack of will? Is it lack of resources? Or is it because they potentially don't want it solved? That's my question, because they are actually trying to kind of shut you down. It's not that they're not supportive. They're just, and you know, with some families and Tim and I have worked with families just go, I just can't do this anymore. It's 20 years you know, you do your thing, but I just, I we can't, en- I can't engage. It's just too much for me. But that sounds like the opposite, you know, this pushback from your own family. I think it, it it's a dual parts and both could be true or one could be true. But I, I do believe there are some, because my dad had several siblings. So I've been talking with like lots of them. So I have like one aunt who I speak with a lot and she seems to me, very much like she wants to solve it. So I'm like, okay, I believe you. But she's also very scared. So I actually did a full, like, I mean, I went out to visit her three times and sat with her for a total of 10 hours. And she called very respectfully about a month and a half ago and said, please don't use my interview in this podcast. And I don't think that it's because she doesn't want it solved. I think she's genuinely afraid. So I think that that's part of it. And then I think there's another part of it where potentially other family members are like, oh, if you get too close to this, I'm implicated. And I don't want to be involved or implicated in this. So the closer you get, the more afraid I am that my name will get brought up. And I will be involved in this. But not not necessarily implicated in the death, but other nefarious activities, referable to drugs and so on. 100%. And I think, yeah, they just don't want their names brought up even in association with everything happening, which unfortunately... I don't care. Um. But how has that affected your investigation, though? Because you've got people giving interviews, then they're pulling out kind of at the last minute. They're not speaking to you at all. How how do you get to the bottom of a 20-year-old mystery with all of these barriers added to the fact that some witnesses will have just, you know, died potentially in that time or forgotten? All those other things that already come with the passage of time. And can I add yes. to that question? Um Has this been a driving passion for you since you were six? When did you decide you really wanted to tease it out? How long ago was that? Yeah, so um, I actually didn't know my dad was murdered until I was 16. Right. So I did not know. My mom never told me. I thought that my dad had a heart attack and passed away. And when I was 16, my mom took me up the two and a half hour drive to Ohio where my dad was murdered and we visited his grave and we went to visit my family. And I meet a certain family member who you can probably guess. And I had a weird feeling and I get in the car and I asked my mom point blank, was Omar there when my dad had a heart attack and didn't help him and watched him die? And my mom freaked out and was like, I have to tell you something. And that's when my mom told me that my dad was murdered. And ever since then, I mean, from that day, I have been like, I will solve this case. I was 16, about to graduate high school and go to university. And that's when I decided I want to become a producer. I want to make documentaries. I want to learn how to solve this. So that one day I can I can do this and make something that will help solve this case. And now, 11 years after that, here we are. How do you solve a crime 20 years later when you've got family members saying, yes, I'll interview you, no, I won't, some trying to stop you, you've got the imminent threats that you're receiving, plus all of the, you know, with the affliction of time, you have all of the memories, you know, being lost and forgotten and changed and people dying or moving away, all of those complications, plus all the ones that the other barriers you're actually facing. So how has that affected your investigation? And was that something that you expected at the beginning? Did you expect to kind of go in and figure it out and suddenly there are all these unexpected walls being put up? I mean, you know, I hope. 
I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I've heard the podcasts, I've seen the things, like these people are solving cold cases in a year. Like, how cool is that? Like, I'll do this for a little bit and then I'll go make something else. Like, I just really didn't think it was going to be this crazy process of like getting everything and it taking so long and trying to reach out to people and then feeling that weird feeling of this something they're not telling me or they're, you know, maybe talking to other people now and I'm hearing word that my name's being thrown around. Oh, Madison's looking into this. But I think kind of going back to like how I found out about this, I've been very frustrated lately just because I go and I don't know what I would have done in middle school knowing that my dad was murdered and not like I could have done anything. But I keep going, wow, so-and-so was alive then. If only I had known, you know, that I could have talked to this person and this person wouldn't have been dead or this person wouldn't have been, you know, MIA and no one can find them. And gosh, if I had only known sooner, like no one wants to wait 20 years to solve a cold case, you know. And I think that I I definitely had an uphill battle just because of my age and finding out so late and not even, I mean, I didn't know how to do this. I don't know what, I don't know what I'm doing even now. I'm making phone calls to people and then finding out through a friend who works at the FBI, oh, you shouldn't be calling this person. Um, So I, I just am doing, you know, whatever I think needs to be done. But yeah, it's, it's definitely a struggle. And to answer your question, I have no idea how you solve a cold case. And that kind of leads to, I did not want to make a podcast about my dad's murder. That was not something I was interested in doing. I wanted to learn how to investigate and interview and do all of those things to solve it on my own. And what was happening was no one cared. No, you you wouldn't be interviewing me if I didn't have a podcast. True. So I I got to a point around three years ago where I was like, I have to make this for people to care. And not only do I have to make this, I have to make a podcast that's like number one on the charts that turns this into a high profile case Yes. so yes. that people yeah. care. And then maybe that puts pressure on the police department. Maybe that puts pressure on the people in the town and maybe something will happen. But this was not something that I wanted to do. I had to do it so because you were sh- this was the only way. So you were shouting into the void, basically, and and realized the only way to be heard was to make this very public. Just stand on top of the mountain. Do you feel then like you've almost got to know your father through the podcast experience? Because he was you were only six when he died. And the man you knew, the man he spent time with, is very different to the man that some other people knew. And so is that been is that been a feeling you've had that you've actually got to know him as a person in a way that you never got the opportunity to in life? But also as an adult now. As an adult, yeah, absolutely, because you're obviously just a small child. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I definitely am learning <laughs> a lot about my dad and some things maybe he probably didn't want, uh, you know, a kid, his own kid to know. It's been really interesting doing it as an adult because... I do have a little bit more life knowledge and understanding and comprehension of the world in ways that I didn't at 16. At the time, I was so angry with my mom for not telling me. And then there's other things. My mom has kind of an interesting life story as well that we talk about in episode two that really shaped me that I blamed her for at the time. But now at 27, I'm able to kind of justify okay, I get why you wouldn't tell a six-year-old. Oh, I understand why my dad made decisions that he made to save himself. He was taking care of my sister. He couldn't, you know, if her mom wasn't able to take care of her and he went to jail, what was she going to do? Like he made these decisions that now I can have more empathy and comprehension around versus earlier, if I had done this, I'd be like, what was, what was going on? So do you think the trip to Ohio when you were 16, she was going to tell you then or it just came out because of your reaction to Omar? Yeah, that's the only reason she told me. And that kind of sparked this mistrust for a long time around, were you ever going to tell me? You were waiting for the right time and blah, blah, blah. But 
But at that point, when would that have happened? And the longer you go, you know, the more upset I probably would have been. Oh, it's been now. And at that point, it had been 10 years. How long were you going to wait? And would the right time have ever come up? Or were you just planning to completely brush this under the rug and pretend like it never happened, which is how they were all living for 10 years. I think it takes quite a personality to keep battling through some of the challenges that you faced. And personally, I can't wait to hear the rest of the story. It was very compelling in terms of a story being told, the narrative, but I'm also very aware that this is your father and, you know, that that deep sympathy and respect that goes to you that you've kind of had to live with this and you're having to go on this journey. But, you know, respect for sharing that with us and, and your passion and your desire to see justice for your father. So, yeah, it's it's amazing. And I'm really looking forward to hearing the conclusions and hopefully one day you'll get some level of justice or or answers at least that you can take into your adulthood because obviously it's changed the, your life, hasn't it? And we thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It was lovely to meet you. I listened to your podcast as well, so it's very cool to be on the other side. That, Thanks so. so much. That's great news. Yeah. Well, that was certainly a fascinating chat with Madison about the journey she's been on since learning that her father was murdered as opposed to dying from natural causes. And it was interesting to hear some of the blockages she's come across and some of the more innovative ways she's found now of navigating those and hoping to move the case forward using her podcast. We've listened to the first episode. It was incredibly interesting and it was amazing to talk to Madison and hear from her own perspective how she feels about how the podcast is going. And she hasn't finished that yet, so we're still kind of on tender hooks to see what her final conclusions are. But that was a, an incredibly interesting chat with a survivor and somebody who's trying to navigate that that trauma of losing her father. And for those who are true crime aficionados, I'd strongly recommend you listen to the podcast. If you're interested in listening to her podcast, uh, we'll provide the link to this at the end of this episode. So that's a wrap for today's episode. In the next episode, what we're going to be doing is talking really more broadly about the psychological impacts of loss on the survivors and how they can try to move forward and how there are different ways of managing that space. So we hope you've enjoyed listening and we will be back with the next episode of Motive and Method very soon. I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallet. And I'm Tim Watson Munro. Thank you for listening to Motive and Method. And remember, if you're loving the show, you can give us a review, you can subscribe to our channel and feed, and you can recommend us to friends and family. You can also set up a bell notification alert so that you'll know first when a new episode is available. I'm Tim Watson Munro. And I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallet, and we'll be back next week with a new episode. <laughs>